do what is a famous and also a wonderful story in the book of Acts. It's famous in so much as, uh, well, we love to tell our kids this story, don't we? You know, uh, Peter escaping miraculously from jail. This is a kind of a classic go-to text for Sunday schools. It's famous, but it's also wonderful, isn't it? In the sense that what we've got here is, is, is exciting. You know, God here overcoming the schemes of, of wicked man, doing it miraculously, but also he's doing it through the prayers of his people. Isn't this marvelous? It is, isn't it? It is great stuff that we come to this morning. But, but before we get our teeth into the text, okay, perhaps there's a question that we need to answer, isn't there? What is this story doing here? You know, why has Luke decided to record this episode in such an incredible amount of detail here? You know, how does this, you know, Peter escaping from jail, how does this fit into all the sort of themes that are waving their way through the book of Acts at this point? Now, do you see what I mean by that? Like, think about the themes just now that we're seeing. We've seen all these awesome conversions. You remember that? You know, the Ethiopian eunuch has been converted. And his soul has been converted. And then Cornelius has been converted. And the, 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 the gospel is advancing now out into the Gentile world. How does this? Peter imprisoned. How, how does that fit into those themes? Well, friends, it's perhaps that we are being reminded here this morning of the necessary suffering of the people of God. If you think about it, look at it. James here is executed by the sword. And Peter is now imprisoned and facing death. Do you see it? Just before God takes us into the first great missionary journey, the church in the next few chapters, perhaps it is, we have been reminded that gospel expansion rarely, if ever, happens without the tribulation and with the suffering of the church, of the people of God. Perhaps that is it. But anyway, let's, let's get to this wonderful uh, portion of God's Word. So uh, if, if, if you're part of the congregation, you know the drill. Please, if you would, have your Bibles open at Acts chapter 12 as we consider our first heading here. And that is the increasing opposition toward the church. The increasing opposition toward the church. Okay, now, last week, we looked at the church in Antioch, if you'll recall. And we saw an increase in the amount of believers in that place. Now, look at how our section begins here. The section here begins with what we might call a sort of thoroughly... Uh, unspecific uh, chronological reference. You see what Luke says? Luke basically just says, uh, come on, about that time. So it's very, very vague, this. But despite the fact that we can't be certain about the time scale here, what we do know is that we are no longer in Antioch. What we do know is that this morning we are back in Jerusalem. More than that, what we do know is that we are back dealing with the persecution of of Christians 
in Jerusalem. And what we need to think about and focus on just now is how that persecution and opposition to Christians has kind of evolved. You know, the persecution of the church in Jerusalem has come on a bit, and it has increased and developed. And I think we see that in a couple of ways in the text. Firstly, think about this. We see a development in the origins of the persecution and where the persecution comes from. Now, do me a favor. Think with me about where we have seen the church opposed already in the book of Acts. Who has opposed the church in our series? You remember? Would you say it's fair? Is it fair to say that we've seen opposition to the church from within itself? Remember Ananias and Sapphira? You know, opposition toward the church from within the church? We've seen that. We've seen opposition to the church from Hellenistic Jews. We've seen it from Sadducees. We've seen it from the Sanhedrin. We've seen it from the religious establishment. Now, look at verse 1 and see what happens here. It's now King Herod who is opposing the church. Do you see this? It is now not the religious... But it is now the civic authorities that maybe, if you would like, the political establishment that is that is standing to, to fight against the church. This is something, this is a new development here. And to see why Herod has done this, it sickens us to our very souls when we read this, doesn't it? Look at verse 3. Look why Herod has arrested Peter. He's done it. Because it pleases the masses. Isn't that disgusting? Herod, the political establishment, the civil authorities, he has killed James by the sword. And the public, they love it. I mean, they cannot get enough of this opposition of the church. And so he turns his attention to Peter. Do you see the point? Christianity here is being used as a political plaything. And as I say that, do you not see the parallel with the situation of our country today? Do you not see that? Like t- today in this country, in Britain in the 21st century, we as a church, we face the church of Jesus Christ opposition from a number of places, don't we? We face opposition from within ourselves. Can I just affirm that? The church is opposed from within. And we see opposition to Christianity. We see that from other religions and faith. Of of course we do. But perhaps more than in a long time, today we now face opposition from civic leaders. We face opposition from authorities, from government. What has happened is that the tide has turned. See, in decades past, you know, the church of Jesus Christ could really have perhaps relied upon preservation, protection almost from parliament. Do you see that today that simply is not the case? Do you see now, in fact, that political parties, an obvious policy of political parties is not to protect the church? Do you see that if, like Herod, political parties want to please the masses, you know, if they want to appear sort of progressive, what do they do? If they want to please people, they will seem to stand opposed to the church. They will be seen to stand opposed to biblical truth. 
Do you see that like Herod today, Christianity is just used as a political pawn? But also here we see a development, not just in where the the opposition comes from, but we see a sort of development in the type or the form of the persecution facing the church. Now again, I'll ask you a favor. Again, please think with me about what we've seen in Acts and think with me what, what form the persecution against the church has taken so far in all these chapters. Can you think back? What's happened to the church? They have been, what would you say, interrogated? That's fair to say, would have thought. The church has been put in trial. We've seen that a few times. The church has been flogged. Remember that? Do you know what? We've even seen the first Christian martyr, haven't we? But you see, where that execution of Stephen was much more of a sort of hot-headed kind of reaction to what the Jews perceived to be blasphemy. Do you see that what you've got in front of you is not like that at all? What we've got now, this persecution, this is much more systematic, isn't it? I mean, this is cold, people. And this is calculated. Herod has killed James and he's seen, ah, there's political gain here. So he then turns his attention to the next person. Do you see? It's ruthlessness. It's the same ruthlessness, but it is more orderly. Premeditated. And again, as I say that, do you not immediately think of the situation of Christianity in parts of the Middle East today? As we talk about a systematic abuse of Christians, does your mind not turn to to the Islamic State? Does it not? I mean, here's the thing. If If we're brutally honest... Christians have always been persecuted in some part of the world. That, there was never a kind of lovely golden age of Christianity. We like to think there was, but oh, there really wasn't. But you see, today, as we consider what's happening in the Middle East, there is much, much more of a, a, a cohesive element to things, isn't there? There is a strategy today, it seems, toward the church and its leaders, just like it was here with Herod, there is today an obvious attempt in parts of this world to eradicate church leaders and eradicate the church. But here's what I want you to hold on to. Regardless of the strategy, the cohesiveness, regardless of the intensity of the persecution of the church, do you know that in every single situation, God stands over it and God is in complete and utter control. Now, we will see this in a minute in more detail, but it is worth noticing at this point just how God acts here to restrain Herod's murderous intention. Do you see how God does that? Do you see how God restrains this tyrant here? Let me ask you, did you notice at what time of year Peter was arrested? Did you see at what time of year is Peter arrested here? It's the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Do you see what that means? Herod is absolutely desperate to kill this man. He imprisons him. He wants to kill him, but he can't. Do you see, it's God's, not, it's not within God's plan at all. God has ordained from all time for this to take place at Passover.
where Herod knows that if he was to dare kill this man, there would be an outcry from all the masses. Do you see? God stands over it. God restrains this, this tyrant, this wickedness. God stands supreme even over the increasing opposition toward his church. God is in control. Secondly, let's consider a sincere response from the church. A sincere response from the church. Now, if you know your church history at all, uh, you will know that it's said of the 16th century Christian reformer Martin Luther, that if Martin Luther had a problem, or even if Martin Luther had a busy day ahead of him, what he would do is that he would get, wait for this, you know, he would get up very, very early in the morning if he's got a problem or a busy schedule, and he would spend the first three hours of his day in prayer. Okay, imagine that. You've got a problem or you've got a busy schedule and he gets up and he spends three hours of the day in prayer. Right? Isn't that amazing? Well, it is a similar response to a problem that we see here in Acts chapter 12. This is crucial because we've seen there's persecution. Pete's arrested. But look how the church respond. You see it? They, they, they bow to pray. Now, please hear this. As a congregation, please hear this. Prayer is the very heart of Christian living. You know, prayer, it is the mechanism that is going to pump spiritual life into your existence. But I think this morning, if we are honest with ourselves in here, I think many of us, that heart of prayer has stopped beating. I think if we are honest with ourselves, we don't pray. We don't, and we certainly don't pray as we should. Here's the thing. There are, in these verses here, a few lessons that can maybe resuscitate us this morning, resuscitate that praying spirit. Look, follow me on this. For instance, will you notice with me how the church pray here? Look at verse 5. How do the church pray? Do you see it? What's the word? They pray earnestly, don't they? Now think about that, what that means. That means that this church here, faced with a problem, they pray with sincerity, okay? They pray with an intensity, the same intensity that Luke says of Jesus in Gethsemane, when he is facing death. It is that sort of concentration. It is that sort of vigor that we are talking about with. Now let me ask you another question. See that intensity and that vigor? Does that sum up and describe your prayer life just now? Does that intensity and that earnestness, does that sum up the prayer life of this congregation, does it? And if not, is there anything we can do about this? Is there any way that we can cultivate a sincerity in our prayers? Well, let me suggest this. If it has been a long time since we've done this and bowed properly at the throne of grace and prayed to God about the problems that we are facing, 
let me suggest that today we get back to it. That not only do we begin to pray today, let me suggest that we begin our prayers, yes, with adoration, yes, with confession, yes, with thanksgiving, but that we begin our prayers asking God to grant us this, asking him to grant us a concentration, asking God to grant us an actual sincerity in our prayers. These people don't just pray about a problem. They pray earnestly about a problem. But notice something else. Notice for whom these people pray. Do you see that in verse 5? Who do they pray for? It says at the end of the verse, they prayed for him. So they pray for Peter. Now, here's the, we don't have to be a genius to work out what they were praying, this church. The situation is that Peter's been arrested. The situation is that the next day, or the day after, Peter is going to be executed. Their friend is going to be killed. It doesn't take a genius to work out what they're praying. They're praying that Peter would be released. That's obvious. Let me tell you what might not be quite as obvious as that. They're praying for repeated mercy, aren't they? What have we already seen in Acts? We've seen that Peter's been here before, hasn't he? Way back in Acts, we've seen that God has already done this. God has already released Peter miraculously from prison. He's done it before. And they are bowing, they are asking God to do the same again today. Do you see the lesson? Do you have a problem in your life just now? Is there a darkness that's hanging over you? Friend, you, as a Christian, scan back over your life. Scan back and and consider and meditate upon the times that you have been shown great mercy from God. You look back to the times that you have seen God's favor, God's grace upon you. And today you bow. And today you plead that God might do that once again. How they prayed, for whom they prayed. Do you know what's really interesting as well? When they prayed. Now, a little boy came up to me this week and he had a question. Yeah. I'll I'll leave it to you to guess who the little boy was. But he came up and he said, when is the best time to pray? When is the best time to pray? And I sort of thought about it. And everyone here knows what the kind of textbook answer to that question might be, do you? You know, okay, well, maybe say you pray always. Um, But the textbook answer a lot of the time, proper times of prayer, morning and evening, right? We accept that that is the sort of you know, textbook time, you know, pray in the morning, also pray in the evening, be praying constantly, yeah? Well, hang on a second and have a look with me in Acts chapter 12 here and think about what happens. Now, think about the situation. Later on, we see that Peter is freed. We get that. And then he goes to this house. Do you see whose house it is? He goes to Mary's house and there's a bit of a delay. He gets in. And he finds the church praying. Now you see the question, do you? See the question? What time was that? Well, think about it. It's the middle of the night. It's the middle of the night. You know, these Roman soldiers, they are all asleep. This great escape 
takes place under the cover of darkness. And he runs there and he gets in and he gets in and he opens the door. And the church is praying. It is the middle of the night. But there is a problem. So the church prays. Friend, again, let me say to you, if there is that problem, if there is that calamity in your life just now, throw the textbook out of the window. Don't just pray in the sort of conventional time in the conventional way. If there is something affecting your life, pray always. You know, if you're waiting for someone and they don't show up, use the time. Pray, seek God. If you're at work and you've got a couple of minutes, seek God, be at God. If, like here, you wake up in the middle of the night, if there is a problem, lay it before your God. That is what the church did here. And then lastly in these, also notice with whom they prayed. I'll be honest with you, I love the imagery towards the end here that Peter does eventually get into Mary's house. There's that, there's that delay, but he gets in. Now, please with me, just imagine what that would have been like for Peter. You know, he's just been released. And he walks in, and let's say he pushes open the door. It's the middle of the night. Can you imagine the joy for him as he sees one or two or three, four people praying for him? Wouldn't that be lovely? That's wrong, isn't it? Because that's not what happens. (laughs) He gets into that house and he pushes the door open. And do you see the imagery? Do you see what we're actually told? We are actually told that many, many people were gathered there. It wasn't two, three or four people that were praying for him in the middle of the night. It was lots and lots of people. Do you see that the church had come together to pray about this man. And do you see also that as London City Presbyterian Church, that is what we should be aiming for right there. Do you see that? That if there is a problem in your life, if there is a problem in the church, if there is a problem in the spiritual life of the people that you that you know and love, if they, like Peter, are on a spiritual death row, it is with the church that you must pray. Do you see that? It is with the church. Because the church praying is the greatest weapon that you have against the evil one. We bow and we pray. A sincere response to a problem. Okay, thirdly, let's consider here the divine power. Divine power through the church. Now, if push came to shove and I had to say what my favorite film of all time was. I think I might have mentioned this before. But I think I would probably go for uh, that Clint Eastwood epic Escape from Alcatraz. You know the film, I'm sure. You can't beat it. Come on. You know that story of, what's this guy's name? Is it Frank Morris and his uh, bid for freedom from not just any jail? Come on. You know, this was an, this was an Escape from Alcatraz. This was, you know, surely at the time, one of the world's foremost and securest facilities is Alcatraz. Now, do you see that there is here a parallel with what we've got in Acts chapter 12? Because Peter's arrested. I'll let you get it. 
It's okay. That's woken people up. It's okay. We should be thankful. Peter is arrested, and I think Alcatraz. Peter's arrested, and the church is praying. But do you see that one of the foremost emphasis of the text here is actually on the level of security here. So hear that, that the focus of the text is on the level of security that Peter is held in here. Right? Think Alcatraz. Now, see what we're told. We're told four squads of four Roman soldiers were guarding this guy. So that's one squad for each watch of the night. See how intense the security is? Now, the usual practice of binding a prisoner to a Roman soldier, that is scrapped. And with Peter, two chains bind him to two Roman soldiers. Do you see? Then we get to the gates. Man alive, picture the gates. These things, huge, big iron bars blocking any escape route here. Do you see this place? Is an absolute fortress. That's what Luke's telling us. But just like Frank Morris, there is an escape bid for freedom. With the point being that, do you see it? The worst that the world can do to try and chain the church it is absolutely nothing to God. Because do you see what is also emphasized? It's not just a level of security. It's not just that this is a high security place. The emphasis is on the ease at which God frees Peter. You see that? The angel doesn't have to worry about breaking in. The angel just appears. He's just there before him. Those chains that are binding this man, do you see what happens to them? They just disintegrate. They fall to the ground. The, The bars... These impenetrable bars, they just part like the Red Sea. Do you see the point? Do you see the sovereignty of God over the powers of darkness? Man's doing everything he can to bind the church, to hold the advance of the gospel. And that is laughable. That is pathetic when compared to the power of our God. And do you see the main point? That happens because the church prayed. God is not acting on a whim. It's not a spur-of-the-moment kind of decision to free Peter. God is acting because he is responding to the prayers of his people. So I ask you this morning, in your heart of hearts, would you love to see salvation? Would you love to see people in your church saved? Would you love to see that? Would you love to see demonstrations of the power of God over wickedness, over darkness, over sin, right across the globe? Would you love to see that? If you think about it and dwell on it and see Jesus lifted high, would you love that? You must pray. I read this week that when the church prays, the cause of God advances. And when the church prays, God's enemies, they will come to nothing. I'm going to close with a fourth thing, very briefly. We see here the sheer disbelief of the church. 
So Peter's escaped. He's got out and he's been led by that angel. And the church has been praying. Do you know what we should see? Because it is really brought out in the text. Is the total shock that engulfs everyone at what God has done here. Like people just can't get their heads around what's happening. Like think about Peter. You see what we're told? He finds himself out in the street. And he's not sure if he's in his right mind or not. Is he? He's out in the street and he's thinking, well, hang on, is, is this like I'm back in Simon the Tanner's roof having another one of my visions and my trances here? Is that what's going on here? Is, or is this real? That's Peter. Disbelief. Think about the church in Mary's house. Poor Rhoda. You know, Peter comes to the door, knocks on the door. Rhoda comes, tells the church, and they think she's crazy. They think this poor girl, you know, who's delighting in it, they think she's lost her marbles, marbles flying everywhere here. Then do you see that so skeptical are they? Now think about this one. So skeptical is the church. They think it is less likely to be Peter than it is to be some heavenly being at the door. Do you see it? Do you see the disbelief? Do you see how it makes? Do you see that the church couldn't even imagine an answer to prayer so good. The church could not even imagine an answer to prayer so great. So I ask you this. If you used your mind this morning and you tried to imagine it, do you think over the next four or five years in this congregation that we could grow substantially? Can you imagine that? If God worked. Can you imagine it though? You know, a few conversions here and there. A few people want for Christ. Imagine that. Can you imagine that all these blue seats here are kind of taken up, full up? Next four or five years, let's say. Can you imagine it? The pews, maybe a people sitting at the side. The advance of the gospel, maybe out into it. Can you imagine it? I think you can imagine it. The next four or five years, I can imagine it. But here's the thing. Here's what we've got to see from Acts chapter 12. God can do much, much greater things. We can imagine that. But God can do, through the power of the Holy Spirit, things that we can't even fathom just now. God can do such wonderful and great things through us, through this congregation, that if we were to know about them just now, just like here, they would shock us. That we would be just covered in disbelief. Do you see that? God can shock us in here. If, if we pray. I'll leave you with this thought. Do you see what happens here with, with Peter in this jail? That happened to Jesus Christ. And that can happen to you this morning. What happened to Peter, it happened to Jesus. Just as Peter was entombed in this dark dungeon. Do you see that Jesus Christ, our Lord, was entirely imprisoned and held captive by death. And just as the Lord freed Peter, so our God, our Father in heaven, he flung the doors to Jesus' tomb open and he burst forth into life. And what was the other side of it? What happened to Peter here can happen to you this morning. 
See, I don't know how you came to church. I don't know where you stand before God. Perhaps you came in here imprisoned by your situation and imprisoned by your sin. Let me tell you this. If you pray, and if you ask Jesus Christ, even this morning, to forgive your sin, to your astonishment, what will happen this morning is that those chains that are binding your soul will dissolve. They will fall to the ground. The gates of death, let me tell you, the gates of judgment in Christ, they will stand before you no longer and you will breathe the air this morning of spiritual freedom in Jesus Christ. And all that comes if you bow before your maker and you ask him to forgive your sin. Now, will you do it? If you do, do you know what? You might be able to look back on this day and see with the hymn writer, that day, Lord God, in September, that morning in London, my chains fell off, and my heart was free and I rose and I went forth and I followed thee. Let's bow.